Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. There has been no topic that people around the city have been talking about more today with more strong feelings on either side than a decision that came up at Hamilton City Council yesterday about a proposed housing build on a city lot, a city parking lot in Stony Creek. It was the idea to do this was defeated, 8-8, a tie vote is defeated. Uh, Those in favor say we desperately need affordable housing. Those opposed say this parking lot is in a very busy part of downtown Stony Creek and business owners, small business owners, say these parking lots spots are desperately needed for businesses. They would be in a lot of trouble if people can't park there. But I don't recall, and my next guest may remember something similar, but I don't recall a vote at council, certainly not on this particular council, that has led to the back and forth with even the mayor putting out a statement, essentially calling out the eight who voted against it, a number of councillors signing on or retweeting that message and others firing back. Uh, Ward 8 councillor John Paul Danko joins me now. Councillor, thanks for the time today. Thanks for having me on, Scott. This is, uh, before we get into the whole thing, it, it was has there been another issue on council this term that has led to this kind of a response among councillors? I don't remember one. Uh, there, there's been some contentious issues that uh, have been fairly close votes, but I don't recall anything uh, that's failed on an 8-8 tie. And it, it is a bit of a technicality that because we have an even number of councillors and a mayor, that anything that does end up in a tie uh, fails. So, you know, I, I'm hopeful, as, as you mentioned, that there will be some uh, sober second thought, perhaps, by council, but uh, I guess we'll see. And when I said about uh, something similar on this council, I mean even that the mayor has put out a statement, as I say, almost calling out the eight who voted against it, saying you really need to rethink this. I I don't remember that happening so far. No, that certainly hasn't happened, and I think that speaks to the importance of affordable housing as an issue in the city of Hamilton. Um, You know, going through the community and and neighborhoods and when I'm hearing from constituents, affordable housing, the cost of living, housing and homelessness, those are by a wide margin right now the most uh, talked about, the most important issues that are on residents' minds. Uh, People are really concerned that their senior grandparents are not going to be able to find uh, housing to downsize or that young families are not going to have uh, affordable housing to move into to raise their families in Hamilton. So it is a huge issue right now. And I don't, um, I don't disagree with that at all. I think certainly, I mean, there was a, a poll that was done even before the election that had housing as the number one issue, a Main Street research poll that said housing is the number one issue. I think yeah. many people in this city, most people would agree with that. I guess the question I have looking at this one is, why has this particular vote, this particular idea, this project drawn such ire when there have been other ideas for housing in the city that hasn't come anywhere close to this kind of anger? That's a great question. And I think it comes down to that council as a whole declared housing homelessness as a crisis. And we formed the housing secretariat and their specific job was to go out and identify ways that we can address the housing crisis in the city of Hamilton. It was unanimously supported by council we provided them with the direction to say one of the easiest things that we can do quickly 
to afford housing, to uh, impact housing and homelessness is to find ways that as a city we can leverage assets that we already own. So city land to develop into new affordable housing. We can do it quickly, we can do it affordably, and we can get those units online. So we gave the housing secretariat that task to go out and find sites where they would recommend that they could be developed. So when they came back, they developed, they uh, recommended a number of sites, the two lots in, in Stony Creek uh, being two of them. So I think that's why there's so much uh, animosity, perhaps, or discussion over this particular item, because it's the very first time the housing secretary has come back with specific policy and recommendations for us to implement as a council. And then it comes down to, uh, you know, an argument over parking versus new affordable housing. So so the issue partly here is that this is one that council has been able to actually vote upon because, I mean, you, you'll recall, many people will recall just last month, there was a project that uh, Dark uh, that Vrancor wanted to put up at uh, King and uh, Sanford and staff said, well, you know what, neighbors around there have complained and there's a problem because there's not going to be enough trees and there's not going to be, there's going to be shading. And ironically, uh, there won't be enough parking, ironic considering this story. And that one seemed to go nowhere and now they've pulled out of that. So there have been others that for other smallish, it would seem things have sort of died on the vine. This one is just the first one that's got to a council vote. So there, there's a number of affordable housing projects going on at any given time throughout the city. You know, I'm working on one in Ward 8 at 60 Caledon, 261 new affordable housing units. They, they take a long time to work through the process. This is the first uh, specific site that's come forward through the housing secretariat where they're strategically looking for uh, ways that we can leverage our assets to alleviate the housing crisis. And I think that's why it's become such a flashpoint, because in order for us to implement the policy that we've given staff the task to do, that needs the actual approval of council to move forward. And for that to be roadblocked or to, to be stopped at the very end, I, I think for many of us is, is very frustrating. I would argue, you, you can correct me, but I don't recall too many projects that have been suggested in the city that have not received neighborhood blowback, whether it's in the Strathcona neighborhood, there was a project uh, talked about, whether it's up on the mountain, there was a giant condo project that's been talked about, whether it's in Winona on the, on the lake. Every time somebody comes forward with a plan for housing, it seems neighbors fight against it. In this particular case, many of the neighbors, including those in the small business, were against it because they said, we need the parking. Does there come a point when councillors and staff have to tell neighbors, I'm sorry, we just don't want to listen anymore. We just have to build housing? I think the concerns from the community, from the business owners, are very important. It's something that we always want to take into account whenever we're moving forward with any project, whether it's market housing, affordable housing, subsidized housing, you know, we want to have that local input. But I think we have a pretty clear mandate from the provincial government and the federal government that we need to build new housing. So that is the mandate that we are moving forward with. And I think in in this particular instance, you know, we're, we're part of the problem is it's a free parking lot. So if it was paid parking, it would have lower utilization rates. And we're only using about um, a third of the site for the affordable housing project. The rest of the site is remaining as parking. 
So I don't think it's going to have the impact that it's it's perhaps being, um, you know, uh, the concerns that have been raised uh, being that as significant as they're being, uh, you know, shown. Uh, we got to run here, but uh, just very quickly, the BIA in that area, in the Stony Creek BIA, uh, described this as an essential parking lot because there's not a lot of parking in that area and small businesses really needed this, need this, uh, in order to have people be able to park there. What about that trade-off? Because if, if they're correct, if the head of the BIA is correct and this would have negatively affected small business, how, again, how do you make that decision? Where's the trade-off that we need housing and we can do it at the cost of small businesses suffering or, or not? How do, you, how do you make that decision? Well, we always want to support small business, especially in our, our downtown areas. Um, those are, you know, the heart of the, the economic uh, system in, in Hamilton. Um, at the same time, it's it's kind of hard to think that the loss of 57 parking spaces is going to make or break uh, the entire downtown Stony Creek business area. So, you know, it's something that we definitely take into consideration. But like I said, a big part of the problem is this is a free parking lot. And, you know, sometimes we do have to make those difficult decisions that, there is a greater good, there's a better use uh, for this site. And as a city, I think we have a responsibility to make those kinds of tough decisions. John Paul Danko, Ward 8 Councillor. Uh, appreciate the time. Thanks for doing this today. Anytime. Thanks for having me on. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. There are economists who are now saying, uh, with all the talk over the last number of years about inflation, and heaven knows, we're all familiar with how much more things are costing these days than not that long ago. There are many in economists saying inflation on most things is now back to kind of the normal range. But inflation on housing and on shelter and whether it's rent or mortgage is still very high and that is driving up the overall inflation rate. So why then, if that's the case, why would the Bank of Canada not cut interest rates to then bring down mortgage costs that would bring down inflation? David McDonald, a senior economist with the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives, joins us now. David, how are you today? Let me bring David on here. There we go. David, how are you? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. Excellent. Uh, Thanks for coming on. I really appreciate you doing this because it does seem like kind of a logical thing. If mortgage rates and by extension then rent costs because people are paying mortgages and the rent is paying for those, if those are really, really high and interest rates could come down and interest rates coming down would bring down mortgage rates, that would bring down the cost, which would bring down inflation. Again, I'm not an economist, but there is a logic to that. So why not do it? Yeah, that's a very paradoxical statement for economists. Uh, that being said, people living through the situation are saying, gosh, my housing costs are incredibly high. Mortgage costs have gone through the roof. Uh, You know, if you've got a mortgage and your interest rate is going up, uh, my rent costs are going through the roof. These are both important parts of the uh, the CPI index, the the, the inflation index. Now, if you take just those two items out of the 300, 400 items in the CPI, and you recalculate the CPI, uh, the inflation rate has actually been in the range that the bank wants to see it at 1% to 3%, uh, and it's been there since May of 2023. Um, the most recent data, which is January 2024, you take mortgage and rent out, 
the inflation rate was 1.7%. So it's not outside of the range that the bank wants to see. It's very much right in the range, actually a little bit below that 2% target. And so you can see the impact that these incredible changes in mortgage costs and rent that Canadians have seen over the past year or so as a direct result of higher interest rates um, impacting the overall inflation index. They're big parts of what Canadians spend money on, and the rates at which they've gone up over the past year and a half directly related to the, the interest rate um, is, is one of the key factors keeping inflation out of that 1% to 3% range. Um, you know, we did see it in the last month come down to 2.9%, so just barely inside that range, the overall inflation average. But that was that's a bit unusual in the last couple of months we've been in the low 3% range. Um, but once you take out interest and rents, then you're well in the range. Um, for economists, this is, this is paradoxical. It's heresy to say that interest rates and inflation could go in the same direction. So you decrease interest rates, you decrease inflation. That is absolutely not how textbooks are written. The textbooks are written that if you increase interest rates, you decrease inflation, and that's the relationship. They go in opposite direction. But every bout of inflation, every economic crisis is going to be slightly different. Uh, and this one in particular, it, because Canadians are so overleveraged, uh, because they went into this inflationary cycle with so much debt, um, the interest expense... Uh, is one of the key drivers now of inflation, interestingly. But when you talk about the paradoxical relationship, paradoxical relationship between interest rates and inflation, uh, I understand what you're saying, and maybe I am a simpleton, but for a long time, we had incredibly low interest rates, especially mortgage rates, things like that, and we did not have out-of-control inflation. They seem to be going in the same direction, no? Yeah, I, and so this is, um, uh, well... I mean, I think it's fair to say that that there is, uh, you know, there's historical precedent in Canada of having very low interest rates and very low inflation. Um, that that particularly coming into the pandemic, you know, 2018, 2019, um, you know, there was a thought that there's no way that the economy could continue to grow, that we continue to have we incredibly low unemployment without seeing an uptick in inflation. And we didn't until, you know, the pandemic wrecked supply chains and, uh, you know, wrecked the war in Ukraine, wrecked oil markets, and so on. Um, and so, but generally, I mean, you sort of think of, you know, the, the textbook example of you increase interest rates, uh, and all of a sudden people are paying so much in, in interest payments, they can no longer afford the basics. And so you slow the economy as, as a result, people lose their jobs. Once you lose your job, you don't buy as many things. And so, so you take pressure out of the economy. That's the that's the sort of bedtime story for economists of how inflation works. But it's really interesting to live through it because uh, there's sometimes a difference between what the textbook teaches and what the circumstances mm. actually are in the economy. And it's not lost on Canadians that these mortgage payments are killing them. Uh, and the mortgage payments are part of the inflation index. And so I think it's time to recognize that in these circumstances, decreasing interest rates would likely decrease inflation. Now, that's not to say it wouldn't have other effects. Uh, I think it absolutely would, particularly on house prices. So that's what I was. The, that's what I was yeah. just going to say. So if all of a sudden we get inter- mortgage rates down again, do we actually gain anything, or then do the prices take off? Because now I can afford more, so I'll bid more. D- is it? Does it really change anything, or is it just a distinction on which pot the money is going into? 
Well, certainly people with mortgages would see a big difference, right? True. They wouldn't see these mortgages killing them, or people trying to rent a place wouldn't see rents going up at 30% a year, which is what you saw in Ontario in the last year. Um, and so there's a, there's a real benefit there. Um, when it comes to uh, the cost of houses, a part of that is actually in, in the inflation index, but in a very peculiar way. Uh, it's the cost to build a house if you already own the land. So it's like the cost of the lumber and the contractors and the cement and that sort of thing. And we do see that, you know, you would probably see some increase in that cost, but that really hasn't changed that much despite these big changes in interest rates. That's not what people usually think about when they think of the cost of housing. It's how much the cost to build a house that's already built. Um, and I think you, you should expect, uh, if you were to decrease interest rates, that you would see some increase in house prices. Despite these big changes in interest rates that we've seen over the last uh, two years, we haven't seen a big decrease in house prices. They've come down a bit. Uh, you know, 10, 15 percent. They certainly, you know, haven't dropped 50 percent or anything like that. And the other thing I think that's worth recognizing is that we may not see the same kind of big uptick in house prices uh, because a lot of people who buy houses aren't people who are new to the market. They are people who already own houses. And if they have a mortgage that has yet to come up for renewal, they're absolutely going to wait till that mortgage comes up for renewal because they'll have to renew at a much higher interest rate. And so that's going to tamp down a lot of the additional demand for people that may already have a house and have mortgages. Uh, and even if they are prone to moving, um, they're going to be paying much higher interest rates. And so that will, uh, even even if they come down a bit, you know, over the course of this year, they're still going to be much higher than they were, um, you know, when they initially got their five-year term. Uh, and so that, that will tamp down demand to some degree. Uh, but, you know, I would expect some reaction, certainly, on, on house prices if we were to see decreased interest rates. That is David McDonald. He's the Senior Economist with the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives. David, thanks for doing this today. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. My next guest, Mike Stubbs, host of London Live on 980 CFPL and the London Knights play-by-play announcer. How are you tonight? Things are great. We're in Kingston, Ontario. The London Knights are going to be taking on the Kingston Front Max tomorrow so right now i'm standing not too far away from city hall and it's a little cooler here than it is in hamilton but i think we should expect that we're a little further north so i want to ask you a quick question before we get into what i want to talk about today have you ever made a very very bold prediction either on the air or whatever else and then a year or two later come back and someone has reminded you and you have sort of looked at them guiltily and said, yeah, I think I must have been drinking that day. I do not know what I was thinking when I came up with that one. We do a thing on the show that I do where whatever we predict on the air, the opposite happens anyway. Ah. No matter what we predict, if you need lottery numbers, if there are opposites to numbers, (laughs) give us those numbers. We will say them on the radio and the opposite numbers will come up. So no matter what it is, yeah, no, that happens all the time because anything we predict is always immediately wrong. You are the Costanza of predictions. Yes. The reason I asked that is I found a story. Now I'm not even gonna I'm not gonna name the person because I this the point of this is not to humiliate them. It's from Bleacher Report though, which is you know a lot of people read Bleacher Report. It's a relatively credible, relatively well read. I think I maybe beyond that online thing. Uh, this one was written a few years ago. Here's the headline: It's not crazy to think Patrick Liney will be better than Matthews and McDavid. 
Yee, that there's one that I'm sure the author is wishing that the internet would chew up and just uh, run down the garburator before anyone saw that one like we are right now. I mention that, though, because I don't know that anyone around here, now I know London is not quite as close to Toronto as we are here, but I don't know that anyone around this area has seen anything like what Austin Matthews is doing right now in a long, 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 long time. And I'm not even sure that everyone is appreciating it for how unbelievable what he is doing really is. 51 goals in 54 games. Right now, when you look at where he sits and what he's doing, the number of players who are on different lists, I mean, you can bend the stats however you want to, but you keep seeing him on lists with Mario Lemieux, and Wayne Gretzky, and Brett Hull, some of the best scorers ever, because that's what he is. And you know what the neatest thing is, Scott? And I hope people dig deep enough to see this. Austin Matthews is somebody who is probably the best shooter in the game of hockey right now in the world. And I don't think you'd have too many arguments about that. But this is a guy that works on his shot. And so... When you think about, well, yeah, but wait a minute, he's, he's naturally talented. He just steps on the ice. He just has the ability to find the holes in the goalie. Nah, he doesn't have to do anything. Must be nice. Must be nice to have that. If we were able to watch how much time Austin Matthews invested into making his shot even better, we'd be blown away. But that's what it takes, and that's what he's doing, and he's being rewarded for it, and his ability to get into holes – He's not a small guy. Mike Johnson was talking about this earlier, how he's not a small guy. And yet, he seems to disappear. And if you don't have your eye on him, he'll get that puck away in such a hurry that it goes through you as a defender or it goes through your goalie. And it's pretty tremendous to see what he's up to. And can he hit 70? I don't know. Can he hit 60? Maybe, probably. And let's remember... He's not exactly 35 years old. He's going to be doing this for a while, and because of the way he works, he's going to keep getting better at it. Yeah, and, and one of the things that so impresses me, and again, th- this is coming from the fact that the Toronto Maple Leafs franchise, if you go back to the St. Patrick's and the arenas before that, I mean, this is a franchise that's been around a long, long time. Never, nobody around here who watches this team, no matter how old you are, has ever seen anything like this before. But it goes beyond that because if you look at the greatest goal scorers of all time, two of them that immediately come to mind, Alex Ovechkin and Brett Hull, they scored, I want to say, 80% of their goals the same way. They, there is a spot on the ice where you just know they're going to be, and they scored from there. And that's impressive, but I find it way more impressive, guys like Mario Lemieux and how Wayne Gretzky and now Austin Matthews, there is not one place. You could not play man-to-man on Austin Matthews and just stand in a certain spot and you're going to block his shot like you could often with Ovechkin. He does it in so many ways. Right. He's able to move around, and it's also wild because Mario Lemieux had the ability, you think about how long his arms are, how long his stick is, and how much he carried the puck and moved it. Austin Matthews is not the guy who's going to deke through you, but Mario Lemieux would do that, and he'd have the puck 
12 feet to one side and then or six feet to one side and then move it six feet to the other side you're trying to defend 12 feet of ice it was impossible Wayne Gretzky had the ability to play off his teammates and just read the play so well and now we're talking Austin Matthews and he's in a conversation among the top goal scorers because that's that's what he is and and the fact that you're right he doesn't fire away from the top of the circle he isn't at the edge of the crease all the time and he still finds ways to score it seems like he's got you know a, a list of a hundred things that he could do to put a puck into a net and it's like over the course of a couple of weeks he's checked all of the boxes yes, yes yeah because of the way he scores all right so let me ask you this then because i've heard discussions in the last week or two that have said what he's doing is even more impressive than, say, Wayne Gretzky's 92-goal season or Brett Hull's record, or 80-whatever he had, because goalies are way better now. Goalies are bigger, and goalies are better, and so therefore scoring today is harder than ever. My argument was, I agree, but he also doesn't have guys hooking their stick around him and, you know, trailing along and hooking and slashing and whacking and holding. And uh, I, I, each era has its own things that make what guys did impressive. Wh- which one to you is the more impressive era? Wayne Gretzky having guys skiing behind him by hooking their stick on his waist and he has to drag them along and guys doing everything to him or what Austin Matthews is doing now with bigger guys in net. For scoring, and I don't want to diminish what Austin Matthews is doing because it's really hard because goalies are so good, because defenses are so good. I think for scoring, I think I'm going to go back to the Gretzky era because if you've ever held a Titan stick in your hand or if you've ever held a Sherwood and you think about using that thing and scoring, it's, it's a little different. And so the sticks are a little bit better now. So the other part was, yeah, you had guys, what were defensemen taught in the 80s? If somebody's in front of the net or if somebody's in a scoring position, you chop their ankles. You cross-check them in the back. As much as, yeah, there's a little of the cross-checking that does go on where you can move a guy with your stick, it isn't the same. You, you don't have that kind of element that's there anymore. So you get a little bit more space as a goal scorer. And I don't want to diminish it because it's still really tough because there's more video now. And they identify as soon as you're doing something, and maybe this is one of the things that we'll talk about in the future that has made Austin Matthews so great. When you do something well, immediately the next team that you face is going to identify how you did that and they're going to come up with a way to keep you from doing that or certainly to make it harder for you to do it. So you have to constantly be changing your approach, just like you were talking, Scott, constantly changing the way that you're doing things. And so that right there is really impressive. But in terms of putting a puck in a net with a Titan or a Sherwood, yeah, I, I'll give Wayne Gretzky's 92 goals the tip of the cap for that one. Yeah, and, and there's one other thing to remember about that because, I've again, I've heard recently a number of people sort of diminishing it. Oh, look how many goals were scored in the 80s. And that's absolutely true. But if it was that easy, would other guys not have scored 92 goals? I mean, the, the reality is, the reality remains that Gretzky is so far ahead and you can only compare people to their contemporaries. You, you can't compare it to anybody else. If it was that easy, a lot of other guys would have done it. You bet. And they didn't. And people can argue, well, look at the team he had. Well, there's good players on a lot of teams. And so, sure, 
no, that was that was special, and this is special too. So you're right to divide it up into eras because you need to appreciate what's going on from era to era. And the arguments as to who the best player is from all time, they feed off that because you can bring in all of these arguments, because you can bring in all of these different facts that come up. So, no, I, I love it for that reason. That's, that's what makes sitting around on bar stools the best. I would like to see, though, and, you know, use AI or something, I would love to see a guy like Austin Matthews with his shot being fed passes by Wayne Gretzky in his prime, who was the greatest passer ever. I mean, it would be, you know, Mitch Marner, uh, who you know well, because, uh, you know, covering the London Knights, Mitch Marner came out of there, you know him well. Pretty good passer, not Wayne Gretzky, though. Uh, it would be it would be something to see a time warp Time, you know, time machine thing that could put Gretzky feeding passes to Matthews. Well, we've got hologram concerts, right? You can go huh? and watch Elvis do a concert. What's to say in the future we won't have hologram hockey games where you can go to a rink when there aren't actual games and you get the holograms on the ice and if you program in what all the players do and if you have AI watch every single game that everybody's played, they're going to have a lot of their tendencies. I that, that would be a neat thing. I don't know. Can we patent that now, right now, on, on the Scott Radley show? I, I absolutely think we should. I, let's, let's just consider it done. Anyone who tries it will just sue. We're going to sue you if you steal our idea. <laughs> uh, hey, I mentioned the London Knights, and you mentioned that you're out in Kingston right now getting ready for a game to call that for uh, 980 CFPL. There is, uh, we're coming up to the NHL trade deadline, and one of the names that is being talked about among Leaf fans as a guy that, hey, you know, we could trade this guy to get, I don't know, a defenseman or something else, is a guy by the name of Easton Cowan that that a few, well, maybe more than a few, maybe a lot of Leaf fans remember from the start of the year, uh, draft pick, London Knights player. This guy, I think, and you tell me because you've watched him all year, I would Based on what I'm hearing and what I'm seeing, if I'm the Leafs, I think I might be very loath to be trading this guy. Yeah, I mean, you can say I have bias because I probably do, but no, I I would not trade Easton because I've known him since he came into the league as a 16-year-old, and he's somebody who has a great family, great parents, uh, was was raised to appreciate what it is that he has as he has gone up the ranks of the hockey world. And he's somebody who right now is on a 24-game point streak. It is the second longest in the London Knights organization dating back to 1997. There's only one player who's gone one game longer. And then if you look at the longest point streaks in the OHL, you get to go back to another Leaf, Doug Gilmore, who had a 55-game point streak in 82-83. In that was a long time ago. If we go back... Uh, a little closer to now, I mean, you're talking just into the 30s, 30, 31, 32. Those are usually the longest streaks, and they come up every 5, 10 years. So what he's doing is pretty special. The thing I really like about Easton Cowan is how many things he can do. So he's not a one-dimensional player. He's not somebody where if he's not scoring, he's not impacting the game. He's somebody who's going to impact the game in a lot of different ways. And he also just has this dog-on-a-bone mentality where no matter what it is, he's going to get it done. He wants to play. He loves the game. And I wonder as, as we move forward in sports, period, how much that will impact things, Scott, where you have certain players, and I think we can probably find them in a lot of sports and leagues now, who you think they're so good and they make so much money 
but they don't love the game because they're comfortable. Easton loves the game, and that's going to keep him really good for a really long time. I would not include him in any deal. my math, I'm just doing it off the top of my head right now. He's only played 42 games. All the guys who are leading the OHL in scoring have a dozen more games played than him, but on a points-per-game basis, I believe he is now leading the OHL. He's been number one or number two the last couple of weeks. There are a couple of other guys who are certainly in the mix. Quinton Musty of the Sudbury Wolves is one. But, yeah, he's he's been right up there. So what he's doing this year, because – he missed time playing for Canada at the World Junior Hockey Championship. So he did miss some games. And in the meantime, he's just been putting up points. But it's, it's the way he does it as well. When you need a goal, when you need something to happen, he's the guy doing it. The Knights were down 3 to nothing in Oshawa a couple of weeks ago with under 12 minutes to go. And they wound up winning the game because they tied it before overtime. And then with 20 seconds left, Easton Cowan finds a way to get a breakaway and scores the winner. Is he is he a guy though? Because he's not a huge guy. Is he a guy you you've seen a? I mean, you've done this a while. You've seen a lot of guys come through London and go on to the NHL either with success or not rising to the level that some people thought they might. Is this a guy whose game translates into the NHL? It is. It is. And when you wonder about the fact that he's not the biggest guy in the world, he grew up on a farm and. Scott, there is a thing called farm strong, and you can go back to any number of defensemen in the 50s and 60s who would have it, who could move people around because of that strength. And he's farm strong, so that's something he's got going for him as well. It is uh, it is one of the real uh, unfortunate things around here this year of not having the Bulldogs. This is a guy that we would have seen in person a few times, and probably a lot more people would be a lot more aware of what Easton Cowan is doing right now. And when we come to the NHL trade deadline, then screaming at their TV and radio saying, oh, don't, no, 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 we don't need a plug defenseman for this guy. But um, you'll, you'll hear his name. You'll hear his name for sure. And when you do, remember what Mike Stubbs, host of London Live and London Knights play-by-play announcer. Remember what he said. Do not trade Easton Cowan. You can scream at the radio if they do. Uh, Mike, enjoy Kingston. Enjoy the game tomorrow. Thanks for doing this. Appreciate the time. Hey, thanks, Scott. Have a great night. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. If you've been listening to this show with any regularity, if a couple times over the last few weeks we've talked about the Canadian Comedy Hall of Fame that's going to be inducting its class in Hamilton this week. And last night, as part of the whole Canadian Comedy Hall of Fame celebration, uh, there was the finish of a contest that's been going on for a while to find the funniest comic in Hamilton. This has been a, a thing that's been progressing for a number of weeks. And the winner, chosen last night, the funniest comic in Hamilton. I don't know if that means the funniest man in Hamilton. We'll, 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 we'll see. Uh, Doug Nagy. Hey, congratulations. Well done. Cheers. Thank you so much, Scott. And thank you very much for having me on the show today. Oh, I I could not be happier. It's such a great event to have this thing here. The thing about you, though, when I was reading this story that really intrigued me about you winning this competition, and I want to get into the competition in a second. Mm-hmm. It's my understanding that you have done comedy in the past, but basically left the comedy world for a long time and just came back. Is that right? That's exactly right. So I started comedy in the early 2000s. I was doing well. I 
was lucky to be part of a really great comedy scene in Hamilton. They adopted me as their own. Uh, Manolo Santanos took me under his wing. Johnny Monroe was a peer of mine at the time. Chris Pick, uh, a lot of friends uh, that were doing stand-up at the time were all fantastic. Got signed by Yuck Yucks. Everything was going as good as possible, but I wasn't able to earn a living. I was in my 30s. So I had to develop a career in order to pay the bills. Which was? You know how it goes. Uh, Canada Revenue Agency. So I worked uh, for the federal <laughs> government. So yeah. There's nothing, nothing yeah. more hilarious than the Canada Revenue Agency. When they send us those letters <laughs> to check on our money, I laugh and I laugh yeah. and I laugh. It's just hilarious. Well, that and, and therein lies the rub. I tried my best to make a living making people laugh, but I ended up making a living making people cry. So that's how it works. <laughs> but know, I got I, married... And uh, was out of the game for about 10 years, had a son, and was just dedicated to being a family man. And as luck would have it, or as misfortune would have it, I got divorced. I had 50-50 custody. And I don't play golf. I don't play tennis. And a lot of my friends who are comedians were always trying to get me back into stand-up. So when I told my friend Manolis that I'm having 50-50 custody, he said, you know what? Why don't you just get back into it? It'll give you something to do. And thankfully, Levity Comedy Club, uh, much thanks to them. They were giving me spots every other week when I didn't have my son. And I was able to work out entirely new material, get back into the game. So uh, it feels really good because even though this isn't something that I do now uh, to pay the bills, it is the absolute best hobby I could ever hope for. And to have the respect of your peers is everything. So uh, I'm as happy as can be today, Scott. That's the but truth. What you're describing sounds less like comedy and more like the mafia. That you know what? You, once, <laughs> once you, you think you're out, but they pull you right back in. You can never quite get out. And I think that is true, right? It's uh, If it's something that you are meant to do, I don't think you'll ever be able to to leave it. And there's a really good Pablo Picasso quote that says, uh, the meaning of life is to find your gift and the purpose of life is to give it away. So this is something that I enjoy. I'm good at. It's a blast to do. And I'm a student of comedy. I've liked stand-up comedy since I was a kid. I like to go to stand-up shows. I like to enjoy comedy and see the other comedians. So for me, it's not only getting to perform, but to see others perform and to mingle with other comedians. As a comedian, a real treasure is just being able to talk shop with some of the funniest people you'll ever meet. And uh, yeah, I'm a lucky man. You you uh, you uh, you earned some congratulations right now. You're the first person I think ever to quote Pablo Picasso on the show. <laughs> so 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 that is a first. But when you're talking though about being in this. Uh, and watching other performers as someone comedy to me has always seemed, and I'm not a comedian. I, mm -hmm. I don't want anyone to, to, and no one will ever mistake me for one, but it's always seemed to me to be very competitive that you can say that it's, you know, I appreciate what other people are doing, but if you are going up on stage and there's, let's say five comedians on an open mic night, people remember the funniest one. You kind of have to be the funniest one to really make your mark. It's a, it seems like it's a very competitive world. So it is competitive, but it's, it's like golf where you're playing your own game. And I, any young comedians that are getting into it, I would really encourage you 
not to be jealous or vindictive against other comedians who may have the set of the night. Because you're right, Scott. You're always trying to have the set of the night. You still want to win it. Uh, you're still competitive, but you are competing against yourself. And even though it is a game where you're doing your best, you want to have the set of the night. I really encourage everybody across the country, wherever you're listening, to get involved in the scene, to encourage each other, to develop your own style and to tell the jokes that you like, because ultimately you are playing a solo game even though you're competitive, right? Doesn't, so that, doesn't that put a lot of pressure on yourself, though, that you're always, even if you're trying to do that, you do want to be that funniest one who's up there. And so if you're not, do you not just go back to your room and go, oh man, what do I got to work on? How do I get to that level? Every single time. So you always want to kill. Even if you have a seven out of 10 set, you're never happy because you want every joke to go off as well as you hope. You want to make people bent over in laughter. You want people to, to laugh their guts out. That's the goal. So even if you have a set that is good, people have a good time. They're happy with it. You're not happy with it yourself because you always know that you can do better. And it's not easy. You're standing in front of people. You're talking. If you slip up one or two words in your set, it can affect the whole rhythm. And all of a sudden, something that could have been a 9, 10 out of 10, is a six, seven out of 10. So you're always sharpening your, your steel. And uh, it's, it's hard on you because as you said, you're always beating yourself up, right? Mm. So you, you gotta be a masochist, I think on some level to get into the game. But what's funny, truthfully, is my favorite memories of doing stand-up comedy are always my worst shows. So All right, tell, <laughs> tell me about that. You talk about you always yeah. want to kill. Have you ever gone on there and had a complete bomb? Oh yeah. So there was one that they called it the Doug Nagy Christmas special. We were doing a corporate gig. And uh, so if they've I, got a name for it. This is not a good start. Exactly right. So the only three people laughing were my friends, uh, Johnny Monroe, Manolo Santanos and Dan Peters, who were the comedians in the room with me. And there were free drinks. So they were enjoying themselves, but nobody was laughing right off the top. I started flipping through my book to think of what jokes they might like. They didn't like any it's lonely. The lights that are on you get hot. All the liquid in your mouth, all the moisture dries up. Your mouth is full of cotton. So another pro tip, always have a bottle of beer or a water handy uh, because if you bomb, you're going to need it. Another and the, thing, the thing about bombing too is, and again, I've not been on the stage to bomb, but I think it's almost as bad for the people in the audience. There's a sense of unbelievable discomfort when someone is up there doing this. It's not just the person up there. Everyone in the room is feeling it. A hundred percent. And it's just the worst. They feel terrible <laughs> for you. There's shame all around. It's palpable. You feel shame. And a particular moment after the Doug Nagy Christmas special, I was there in the foyer wallowing. And my friends were trying to say, it's okay, just shake it off. This lady comes up to me and goes, sir, I just want you to know that as American, I was disgusted. <laughs> <laughs> and I responded, well, I just want to let you know as a Canadian, I don't care. So I said, <laughs> well, oh, it happens. Yeah. It, it happens. So so let's go back for just a second here to working mm -hmm. at the revenue agency. How do you go from being a comedian and stifle every urge? Because again, I'm guessing when you're sitting in the office there prior to COVID, I'm guessing that not all the people are eager to be listening to you rip off comedy routines all day long, every day to work on your stuff. How do you stifle that? 
Well, it's you compartmentalize it, right? When you're at work, you're professional. You you do the job that's ahead of you. And uh, I'm a person who believes in government. I believe that in order to run efficiently, everybody has to do their part. Uh, so I buy into that, and uh, it's I'm I'm paid fairly, and the the benefits are good. I have a son, so I have to uh, take care of my responsibilities. And I'm very fortunate where I have a job that allows me to to do that. And to be honest. Now that I'm back in stand-up, it's because I have a solid job that takes away all of my uh, needs to take care of myself and my family that allows me to be much more free when I'm doing it. So I'm happy to be a civil servant who is well-mannered and uh, doesn't do blue material at work. And I'm certainly able to burn that steam off on stage. Uh, so it's the best of both worlds. And uh, I'm a lucky guy. So what did you talk about yesterday to win this thing? What was the uh, what was the what was the line? Where where would we go with this? Okay, so I have some jokes that I've been working on. Uh, I started off with. Did you want me to? Well, I, some of it's not appropriate for radio, uh, save, but I went save those. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So I I went to school to be a Protestant minister. So I do a joke off the top about that and how uh, I no longer. Uh, that's not the career path that I'm in now, but my friends will still make fun of me about this because I'm a comedian. Then I went into a joke about gaining weight during COVID, which is very relatable. Yes, yes. I then uh, make a joke about uh, I, I lost all the weight, though. I had the best diet of all time. Long pause. Divorce. So that's good. <laughs> then I go into a divorce bit. And then I closed it out with a bit about Osama bin Laden, which I'm surprised it went as well as it did. Uh, but it was uh, a very good set. The laughs per minute uh, was good. Were good. And uh, what I kind of did is it ha like how you'll see a band if they're doing a best of to do a medley. It was kind of a seven minute minute medley of the material I've been working on for the past two years. So you trim stuff down. You try to work it into the seven seven and a half minutes that you got. And uh, I got it to 724, so I utilized all the time I had available to me. And uh, the crowd was with me from the first joke. Oh, that's awesome. And, and, oh, and you're, a very, you're a brave man to go right from divorce to Osama bin Laden. I hope that that <laughs> wife was not compared to Osama bin Laden at any point as part of that, you know, for your own personal safety. But um, <laughs> no, no. Um, go ahead. No, I was in my separation agreement. I'm not able to say anything defamatory or disparaging against my ex-wife. So she's the best. The uh, this this win now means that Doug gets to perform as part of the gala on Saturday night that uh, at First Ontario Concert Hall with Sean Majumder and Eric Johnston and a number of others, Elvira Kurt. Uh, that is going to be coming up. I, I don't know if tickets are still available, but people can go and look that one up. The Canadian Comedy Hall of Fame induction goes on this week. Uh, Doug Nagy, winner of the best comic, funniest comic in Hamilton. Uh, really appreciate you doing this. Thanks for taking time today. A pleasure, my friend. Thanks, everybody. If you can make it out, I'll see you on Saturday. The Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML. The Scott Radley Show podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Radley. Thanks again for listening, and do not forget to subscribe to this podcast. It is free. You will never miss an episode. And also, be sure you rate us and review us. Whatever you think of us, we'll take it. Thanks for listening.